Things are tough for an independent marketing consultant just starting out. Unfortunately, there's nobody out there throwing themselves at you saying, you're a marketer? You just started your own business? Oh my God, I've got so much work to throw at you. Here, come have some money. Speaking from disillusioned experience here, that's not how it works. You've got to grind. And when an opportunity finally comes along, if you've been grinding long enough, you might be ready to jump at just about any old thing that comes along. John Jantz knows, the founder of Duct Tape Marketing, a well-known firm and podcast, he's been grinding since the 1980s. And early on in his career, before he'd found his niche as a small business marketing maven, his mere association with one of his early clients landed him on the receiving end of a federal grand jury subpoena. That was a knock on the door, and uh, I'd never wished for it to be an insurance salesperson worse. The ordeal isn't an experience that he much likes to talk about, even these days. But in today's episode, we'll parse some of the takeaways from John's cautionary tale, glean some lessons from his more than 15 years as a podcaster, and catch a few tidbits about his new book. I'm Dusty Weiss from Podcamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares and the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. Thanks for tuning in. Before we introduce John, I wanted to share some exciting news from the team here at PodCamp Media. We've been in the business of making podcasts for corporate clients about two years now. But first, out of startup necessity and then out of pandemic necessity, we have been in all virtual operation that whole time. And while I love the flexibility that offers me, sometimes our clients want to have an opportunity to tape their shows in a full-blown professional studio. And sometimes I need a place to go where the pitter-patter of thundering little feet doesn't dictate when I can and cannot roll tape. So I am thrilled, thrilled to announce the relocation of PodCamp Media World Headquarters from the basement of my home to a homey little studio in vibrant downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A huge thank you to all the clients who have entrusted us with their brand success to get us to this point. Big ups to the PodCamp team for their hard work. And of course, thank you for sharing your time and your attention with us throughout the years. In fact, as an additional thank you, you're cordially invited to join us for a grand opening celebration a little bit later this fall. Visit podcampmedia.com slash balloon or click the link in the episode description and sign up for the PodCamp Media email newsletter to make sure you get the party invite when they go out in a couple of weeks. We're joined now by John Jantz, founder and president of Duct Tape Marketing, a consulting agency based in Colorado. He's an author of several books on the topic, including the eponymous Duct Tape Marketing and his latest, The Ultimate Marketing Engine. And he's also the host of one of the most well-known and longest established marketing podcasts in that space, which, of course, is called Duct Tape Marketing. So, John Jantz, thank you for joining us on Lead Balloon. Oh, thank you. And I think that that's the first eponymous that I've had uh, attached to uh, my intro. So thank you for that. <laughs> Anytime I can drop a uh, $1 word into a world filled <laughs> with five cent words, I'm always happy to do it. But uh, so very cool to have you on the show. Uh, you've been doing duct tape marketing, the podcast for more than 15 years since those dark, dark days when a podcast was still something that you downloaded onto a computer and then transferred onto an iPod. Uh, you're one of the most widely cited and often recommended podcasts in the marketing space. And so in a little bit, I want to pick your brain a little bit about the success of that show. But first, you and I talked previously about the dangers of starting out as a consultant, about how 
early on, it, it feels like there are wolves at the door and you just need to take any client who comes along. And certainly that's a feeling that I know all too well as someone who's just two years into his trajectory as a business owner. So take us back to early in the history of duct tape marketing. What led you to launch your own operation in Kansas City? How'd you do it? And how did you get by those first couple of years? Yeah, so so I would say that the, that danger that you mentioned is true of any entrepreneur, <laughs> any business. But I I had worked uh, for an ad agency for about five years, actually right out of college, and and thought you know one day oh, any dummy can run a business. How hard could it be? Uh, that was about that was my business plan. In fact, I think. Um, but uh, you know, jumped in like a lot of people and and hustled work. I, I you know worked my my connections of people I knew big. Big companies, little companies, big projects, little projects, pretty much anything somebody said, well, we need this. Can you do that? You know, my answer was always, sure, I can do that. <laughs> and so, you you know, to some degree, that's how it should be. Um, and what I mean by that is very rarely could we say, I'm going to start a business that is going to focus on dental practices and I'm, this is all I'm going to do because we just don't know enough about the market. We don't know enough about, we don't have any experience. And so a lot of those early years is about gaining the experience to, to maybe fully understand what your business should be or who you should focus on. And I think that that's why it's so often that, that companies pivot because you know, they come up with this grand plan in a, in a room, you know, with a, or a garage or whatever it is where they come up with a grand plan, but what, without real world data and testing and and trying and and learning uh, what the market needs, uh, you you really can't end up, I think, where you're going to end up. So I ultimately did uh, decide or, or focus in on, on the fact that I loved working with small business owners. Uh, and that's really something that I've now, and it's probably been my life work for the last uh, couple decades, is to bring a very systematic approach to marketing to the world of the, the smallest, in some cases, uh, of businesses. But it took you a while to find that niche. And, and in the meantime, um, you know, they say that no battle plan survives first contact with the battlefield. And right. and that's kind of where you were as a, a small business owner. Um, what sort of clients did you have early on in the history of uh, duct tape marketing? Yeah. So as I mentioned, it was pretty much anything that would come my way. I had a particular uh, interest in politics. Uh, I was young and naive. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 I too once did politics and, and that's why I have the haircut that I have yeah. now. So <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was a really cool happening space. You could make a difference. Um, and so, uh, and, and frankly, they're very much in need of marketing, you know, especially since uh, the world was just at that time starting to dip their toe into the online world. And so uh, a lot of industries were like, hey, we're, we're behind the eight ball, you know, on this. We don't know how to fundraise or uh, communicate online. And so there was a lot of opportunity in that space, too. I had corporate clients as well. I even had some small businesses that kind of looked at me as their marketing department. Um, so I was really kind of all over the place, but I, I did do a, f a significant amount of business in the political world, uh, particularly focused on campaigns, initiative campaigns and things. So uh, I wasn't a lobbyist or anything for anybody, but I, you know, I helped them get elected. I helped pass uh, measures. All right. Help them tell their story, essentially, is, is what I've always thought that we do in, in marketing and public relations is, is take people who are not necessarily great at telling their own story and help them connect with the public in general. 
Yeah, and it, it was really everything. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of campaigns, they basically are pop-up businesses in a, in a way. And so they, you know, there's no logo, there's no, you know, brand at all necessarily. Maybe that person is a known uh, entity to some uh, percentage of the constituency, but direct mail was probably the the, the biggest tool uh, that, that, that we used to help tell the story just because when I was doing this, email and, and certainly social media was not even a part of the landscape. That is a different world to work in back then. But uh, let's talk about this one client in particular, the one who landed you where no marketing <laughs> or public relations professional, no person I would imagine in general ever wants to be. And that's in front of a grand jury on an FBI subpoena. Uh, we're going <laughs> to speak vaguely about this um, for uh, a number of reasons. One, because it was a long time ago. Two, because, you know, I still have to work in this town and, and free because <laughs> nobody wants to get a visit from the leg breakers. But uh, what can you tell me about this particular client? How'd, how'd you get started with uh, this one? Yeah, so so a lot of um, anybody who's familiar with particularly initiative campaigns, you know, a lot of different groups uh, come together to support them. So you know, you have uh, conservative groups, you have labor groups, you have religious groups. I mean, any kind of grouping or community of people will typically are are you know get actively involved in in politics. And so uh, the 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 client that you're uh, referring to uh, represented actually a number of uh, trade and labor unions, and and you know. As anybody knows, a lot of those groups are really try to have influence in certain campaigns. Um, this was actually a campaign to pass legalized gambling in uh, the state of Missouri. Uh, at the time, they were calling it Riverboat, uh, but uh, they've kind of decided that they actually just would build a building next to the river and call it a riverboat. But at any rate, <laughs> that, that was somehow more palatable to the more conservative forces, and so they 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 passed that. So, just in working certain campaigns, you know, typically just like people call themselves Democrats or or Republicans, a lot of times consultants that are involved in that typically get involved on one side or the other. Now, there definitely are people that that work both sides of the aisle, but for the most part, you know, especially on a localized level, you know, you're branded as or you choose to to be involved in one camp or another. So you end up working with a lot of the same people that typically get behind certain campaigns and get behind certain candidates because they're of, of a certain party. So this group that represented the labor unions was very involved in fundraising and and certainly direction of you know campaigns a lot because they poured a lot of money and and support into them. And so that's actually the the client uh, that the FBI was investigating. The specifics on this one, we're gonna have to just leave that to our imaginations. John assures me that whatever we come up with is going to be a better story anyway. But for my part, I'm going to imagine some burly backroom dealing teamsters and a federal probe into Jimmy Hoffa's whereabouts. Regardless of the nature of the charges and the organization, John was just trying to do his job on the ongoing casino campaign and grow his business. He never suspected that he might get roped into a federal grand jury investigation until the day a federal agent came calling at his front door with the subpoena. That was a um, that was a knock on the door, and uh, I'd never wished for it to be an insurance salesperson uh, worse. But uh, but no, that uh, they, they, they that was delivered by a special agent. And and what was your initial reaction? Was it just pit of the stomach? Sort of, I can't believe this is happening to me, or, or what, what do you do after you have that conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a long time ago, so I probably don't, my vivid memories of it are probably not what they were at the time, but certainly, you know, the first uh, is obviously shock. 
You don't have to have any personal experience with the federal probe to know that they can be pretty far-reaching. And so John assures us that his grand jury appearance, while traumatic, was not due to any even tangential involvement in the alleged impropriety. After one or more of these campaigns, you know, they basically called in anybody that showed up on their books as as a vendor, if you will, which included me, and just wanted to know what you knew. Um, now, the good news is uh, I knew very little. I mean, <laughs> that's a good place to be in a situation like that. Yeah, that's right. I was my my, my story was totally uninteresting uh, to them, and so it was it was a very in and out, you know, no replications, you know, for me at all. I mean, it definitely was the wake-up day to say, yeah, I get to choose who I work with and not the other way around. But I think it was more than that. I mean, it was probably also the moment I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out of this industry uh, as well. So obviously that was a big shift too. You know, just by being near and in this industry, you know, you can, you can get your reputation tarnished. And so that was a real pivotal turning point in my career where I said, you know, I'm just, I'm going to get out of this business. I'm going to, you know, really focus on working uh, for for clients that I love, that I respect, that I believe we at least have some amount of shared uh, values. And I, I tell people a lot of times that, you know, obviously I wasn't doing anything illegal, but, you know, I was pretty sure they were, or at least I had, had a sense that they were. And so that's to me was the wake up in that I was saying, you know, it's really easy to find yourself in that position where you wake up one day and go, you know, this, this, this isn't who I am. This doesn't represent my values. You know, why am I playing here? And I think you either do something about it, you know, or you continue to get sucked in. And so I, you know, that that was that was a sort of pivotal moment for me and really informed the next three decades of my work. That work would come to include one of the most well-known and longest-running podcasts in the field, Duct Tape Marketing. And so coming up after the break... Just to record the show was hard, then just to get somebody to listen to it you know, was hard. So obviously, I think that was a lot of the drag on why it actually didn't take off immediately back then. The evolution of podcasting as a marketing tool from the guy who's pretty much been doing it longer than anyone. That's in a minute, here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. A cursory Google search for best marketing podcasts will yield many results, including this one, which was named Marketing Podcast of the Year by Adweek in 2020. But a constant presence in those search rankings is John Jance's Duct Tape Marketing, not only because it's a reliably informative show, but because he's been doing it since before most people even knew what a podcast was. You launched Duct Tape Marketing, the podcast, in 2005, and, and for those who weren't into podcasting back then, I'll, I'll tell you this, it was a labor of love for both the people <laughs> that made the podcasts and the people who consumed them. And I just want to note that in the years since 2005, I have had nine different jobs in media and strategic communication, John. And I'm, <laughs> honestly, I'm not sure that I could name them all without having my resume in front of me right now. So what made you jump into the podcasting space and what made you stick with it for so darn long? So a couple things. I started blogging in 2003, which was you know, certainly not the first blog, but very early on in, in when people started doing that. And I, I really saw podcasting as the next thing, as an advancement of that. And I think people even talked about that. Oh, audio blogs now are, you know, are really going to be it. <laughs> audio blogs. <laughs> but, but, you're, but you're absolutely right. It was hard <laughs> on both ends, which was really never a good thing. It was hard to produce, but it was also hard for people to listen. 
there, there was software out there uh, called Podcatchers that people would have to actually download in order to subscribe to your show. Now, it still used the RSS technology that we use in many, many ways today, but it was new enough that just to record the show was hard, then just to get somebody to listen to it you know, was hard. So obviously, I think that was a lot of the drag on why it actually didn't take off immediately. Back then, I mean, I, I would say you could point to about 2010, 2011 or so when podcasting just really took off. And so that that kind of gap years in between there, it actually kind of faded. 2006, 2007, all of a sudden this thing called Twitter and Facebook came along for people. And that became the new hot groovy thing for people to do. And so podcasting kind of well, fell by the wayside. The second part of your question, I mean, why did I stick with it? I didn't really get into it to build a giant audience. Um, I got into it because it gave me an excuse to call up or to email people that I wanted to talk to who all of a sudden were more interested in talking to me because I was going to promote their new book or promote their business or something. You know, for example, one of my first guests was Seth Godin. I didn't know Seth at all. Everybody, I'm sure many of your listeners know him. He's become a good friend. He's actually written, you know, cover blurbs for many of my books, but you know, my first contact with him, my first reach out to him was, hey, I see you have a new book coming out. I'd love to get you on my show for 20 minutes. Now, had I sent an email that said, hey, I really like your work. Can we get on a call? I'd like to pick your brain for 20 minutes. Um, you know, silence. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I don't know that about Seth necessarily, but I'm guessing I would have gotten no response. But when I was a member of the media wanting to interview them and promote their show, do something for, you know, my guests, I generally got a yes. And so, it gave me then the opportunity to have some conversations with folks that I that I wanted to speak with. You know, I produce great content. It raises my you know, my level of of authority by being associated with these guests. So it, it was definitely worth sticking with it. Now, around as I said, 2010 or so, Apple decided to put podcast app native on the iPhone, and the rest is history. Because now it was very easy for people to listen, and all of a sudden, the NPRs of the world said, "You know what? <laughs> this next generation is not listening in their car to radio as they're driving to work. We, you know, we need to be in these places too." And so now, obviously, it's a giant industry. It's a giant medium, and I, and and frankly, I, I don't study these things necessarily, but I think it's still in its infancy in some ways uh, for for a lot of folks because uh, you know. A lot of uh, brand advertisers, you know, we 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 have fortunately because of stuck with it, built a very large audience, and so it's the hottest area at which brand advertisers are now contacting us uh, it, to to want to be a part of the show, want to be a part of our our listener base. So, you know, sticking with it has paid off. But I I really tell people all the time I would have done it if you know I only had two listeners because uh, you know especially I think during the pandemic we couldn't see anybody, you know, so it was like my it, it was my lifeline, you know, to to really being able to connect and network with some of the smart folks that I get to interview. Yeah. You know, people ask me, you know, okay, where do you get your clients at PodCamp Media? And I, I tell them it's kind of three different buckets. And and the first one is just the word of mouth, which is, you know, a, a classic marketing tactic that you come to rely on. The second bucket is the content marketing that we do via this show. People listen to Lead Balloon and they say, oh, I really like how you guys make podcasts. Can you make one for us? But the third one, and the one that surprised me the most, is people that I reached out to to have them on the show right. as guests who then turned around and finished the conversation and say, so wait, your business model is you just make a podcast for anybody that hires you to do that? And we say, that's what we do. And and yeah. more often than I think I expected, they turn around and say, well, I think I got a job for you. Yeah, yeah. 
That's right. I, I will tell you, if you have any small business listeners out there thinking, oh, podcasts are, you know, it's too late for me to get in uh, into podcasting. I tell people all the time, so who's your who's your ideal client? Who's your target market? OK, it's it's mid-sized company CEOs. Great. Start interviewing mid-sized company CEOs you know, around the country, companies that you admire, companies that are prospects that you would love to get on their radar because you will, as a member of the media now, you will be an invited guest. You'll get to meet some of the people who would never return your email or your phone call. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to look at this and, and look at, you know, shows that that have huge followings and have sponsor ads and all those kind of things in their shows. Use it as a, as a lead generation, as a lead mining tool, which is also going to produce awesome content for you. Now, by the same token, you better make sure that when you reach out to that mid-level CEO, that you're coming at them with a pitch that is professional and polished. And when you get them on the phone to interview them, that it's not just this sort of bargain basement level of podcasting, but something that actually reflects well about your business in a way that makes them want to work with you further on down the line. And so I definitely, I coach people that, yeah, you've got to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward in your podcast production process as well. But I'll say this too. I actually, I, I cite your podcast regularly as, as a cautionary tale for new podcasters. Not that there's anything wrong with what you do or how you do it. There's not. You've been doing it for a long time and you're the best at it. And and that's what I tell startup podcasters that if they're getting into this space, they need to come with an original idea. That's how yeah. I arrived at the concept of lead balloon, for instance, because I wasn't going to launch a marketing podcast and jump in and out John Jantz, the John Jantz. So if you were new to this space today, and if you were launching a marketing podcast tomorrow, how would you go about it now? Well, I think a lot of it depends on your objectives. I mean, what are you launching this for? I mean, in your particular case, uh, to, to get podcasting clients was a big part. I mean, it is a logical thing, but I think that that would also dictate who you would interview and, and how you would approach the show. But I, if I'm that local accountant um, and I'm thinking, how can I, how can I differentiate? Launch in your town, interviewing whoever your target market is, or or maybe come up with a, a particular topic or two that uh, that are problems that a lot of businesses have in the world of accounting, um, and and really focus on solving those or or having conversations with people about solving you know a particular problem or set of problems. I, I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, the, the, does the world need another show where where an an author interviews a, a bunch of marketing authors? Maybe, but probably not in terms of ultimate reach uh, for for your goals. So that's I I really come back to, it and I know it feels a little too much of a consultant uh, answer, but it, it what you do and how you do it. No question, you always want to stand out. You always want to think about what problem is this podcast prepared to solve for people who would listen to it. But a lot of it's going to be dictated by your overall objectives. You know, for me, my objective was never. I shouldn't say never, but it was not originally to make money with my show. It was to have conversations. And so the beauty of that is that's why I stuck with it. That's why I you know, muddled through. We, we haven't even talked about the technology in 2005. What were you recording on back in 2005? I have to know. Nobody had Skype. 
So we certainly, you and I were recording on Riverside. Uh, nobody had Riverside. I mean, that's a new new invention. I actually was able to acquire a device that I could plug into a telephone that would allow me to then plug a digital recorder, a little portable digital recorder. So people would call me on the phone. Uh, I would plug this device in and I would hit record. Uh, and then after we were done, of course, this is all just on one, you know, one track. Uh, after we were done, I would take that over to the computer and I had to get some adapter, I think, for a US device and I would upload it to the computer from the, you know, the handheld device that I had. And really this handheld device, they actually may have even had, no, I guess they were digital. I was going to say, I might even had a tape version. Oh, uh, wow. but A mini disc, uh, maybe. Yeah. The old Marantz mini disc recorder. I did have a two, two track Marantz uh, recorder, but uh, this uh, my, was probably the original digital, one of the original digital uh, versions. But a ton of work uh, to get done. And and quite frankly, the sound quality was bad. We weren't using these $1,000 microphones. I mean, we were on a telephone connection, which is a pretty crappy microphone and uh, going across a pretty crappy delivery device. So uh, that's another thing, of course, that obviously the not only has it gotten easier, but the, the quality is uh, ha- you can get studio professional quality now for you know very low cost yeah yeah no it's a wonderful time to be creating content but again what i like about that is is you hit on the fact that you weren't focused on monetizing it right out the gate and too often i think we hear from people getting into the podcast space man i can't wait to get those ad dollars coming in and i think what gets lost in that conversation at least until they talk to someone who is expert in this space like you is that monetization comes later you need to focus on putting out good content that connects with people and serves a niche and answers a question that they have before you ever start focusing on monetization well and that's true of of, you think about it just every sort of relationship and connection uh, and marketing channel i mean put value out there first and the money will come Speaking of putting value out there, you've got a new book coming out. I do. Which happens to include some allusions to the uh, tale of woe that we discussed earlier on today's program. Where do we look for that and how do we get our hands on a copy? You bet. So it's called The Ultimate Marketing Engine and it's five steps to ridiculously consistent growth. So it is essentially a strategy book uh, that is an evolution of I've continued to practice marketing every day, you know, for the last 30 some years. So it's an evolution of my thinking on, on marketing. As far as getting a, a copy of the book, it, uh, there is a companion website. It's just the ultimate marketing engine.com. You can get some free chapters there to get a sense of it. I've also got a, if you pre-order a copy of the book, you can uh, pick up a companion course for free. That's uh, some videos and, and worksheets. And, and really this, I like to talk about this book as almost being like a a workshop contained in a book uh, because uh, every chapter I give you action steps and all those action steps have forms and tools and resources to to help you uh, accomplish the action step. So if you get the book and you'll get the links to the resource uh, pages, you, you'll find that this is a book you can really take a lot of action on. Well, ridiculously consistent growth is something that I've been looking for. What's uh, step one? How do we, uh, can, you, can you give me a little preview of this? Sure. So the first step I really introduce in the book is to is to map where your best customers are today and then to understand or discover where they want to go. So a lot of people, a lot of businesses are are very engaged in selling 
what they sell. We help people create podcasts. But for example, and people come to you probably in the stage where they don't have a podcast or they have a podcast, but they haven't been able to be consistent and it's kind of crappy quality or something. So you probably recognize, you know, here are the characteristics of somebody in that kind of starter stage. Uh, here are the challenges they're facing uh, because we see it every day. Um, but here also is the promise that if we can make, if we can get them uh, to have a professional show that's targeted on their market that has the ability to grow because it is doing all the things that we say a show should do, you can take them to the next stage. And so, you know, ultimately what I'm suggesting is to create what I call a customer success track uh, that really does focus on, oh, let's let's do understand, you know, the, the stage most of our best customers come to us in. But you know, ultimately, if we get them a great show going and, you know, what's the next stage? Could we get them monetization? Could we actually get them, you know, more publicity uh, for their show? Could we get them fans and followers? I mean, what what do the stages look like? And I think that uh, the beauty of this is, first off, when somebody's coming to you, they're coming to you with a problem, but you're actually able to show them what the world could look like if, if they not only solve that problem, but what's next and what's next and what's next. And I think that giving people that that view of the, the blueprint or the roadmap really differentiates you from somebody else who's just basically slinging the tech at them and saying, you know, here it is. <laughs> you sound good on tape now. Uh, you know, here's the bill. I, you know, I, I introduced this idea of thinking of your customers as members. You know, they don't just come to you for a transaction. They, they, they actually start coming to you for a transformation um, in their business or in their life. And, and so what would that roadmap, that customer success track, as I call it, look like? And you know, I've built it completely for marketing because that's what I've been doing for 30 years is helping people mature their, their marketing and grow their businesses. Uh, but my contention is that, that really every business out there, regardless of industry, could start taking this approach. And there's a lot of really practical reasons for it too, because people come to us in the foundation stage, the website's not working, they have no content, SEO has been kind of an afterthought. We know that if we complete a series of milestones while they're in that stage and tasks associated with those milestones, we can move them almost guaranteed <laughs> to the next stage. And so from a training, hiring, messaging, you know, mission even for our business, it, it this customer success track actually is the overarching strategy for our business now. I've been kind of talking through some similar principles actually with the folks on my staff and one thing that I'm trying to drive home to them is that we don't sell people podcasts we sell them essentially confidence we sell them the ability to go to their marketing team and say hey what we've got here is a really good piece of content that represents the company well and the ability for them to not have to worry that it's going to get picked apart by their management team yeah. and we sell them the coaching that it takes to when we've got someone who's going to be hosting their own podcast and serving as the voice for their brand we sell them the confidence of being able to feel like a rock star when they sit down behind that microphone and take away the worry of you know what are people going to think of me? What if I stumble on my words? What if I don't come across as well as I want? By knowing that we're going to have a team of editors standing behind them to be able to cut up their thing and, and make them sound like a professional order, whether they're having a great day or not. And so I think that there is a ton of wisdom in that, John. 
Yeah, thanks. The, the The real key there, though, is, you know, I talk about making your customers successful. You can't make every customer successful. So you really have to understand, you know, uh, our best customers, the top 20% of our customers, what is it about them that, that makes them our best customer? They're generally profitable. They have the right mindset. They're in your business. I'm, I'm sure it's they have a plan for where they're trying to go with this. And so one of the real key steps to this is not just to build this customer success track for the world. Build it for the top 20% of your current customers today so that you can, A, go out and find more of them. Focus on finding more of them and B, figure out how to grow with them. And so many businesses are are ultimately focused on getting more customers, which is great. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But my contention is that the top 20% of your customers, some percentage of them would do 10 times more business with you today if you had a way for them or if you discovered a way for them to do so. And maybe even some smaller percentage of them would do 100 times more business with you if you thought in terms of helping them go from where they are today to where they want to be or where they want to go. And that, and that's, uh, to me, retention and repeat business and evangelists for your business, that's where your greatest source of lead generation and growth and momentum comes from. Well, I'm sure that there are a ton more insights like that in the book. It's certainly something that I'm going to plan to check out. But uh, John Jantz, founder, author, and host of Duct Tape Marketing, the agency, the book, and the podcast. DuctTapeMarketing.com is your website. Your new book is The Ultimate Marketing Engine. It drops later this month. John Jantz, thanks for joining us on the Lead Balloon Podcast. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is going to do it for this episode of Lead Balloon. If you find value in the show, do me a solid. Take out your phone, pull up your podcast app, and find the share button. Your recommendation to your friends and colleagues is still the best way for me to grow the audience and produce more and better PR and marketing disaster stories. So tell your friends, please. Lead Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.